Marley was dead. There is no doubt about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge and Marley had been partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. Scrooge was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts, and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond was copying letters. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! Bah! Humbug! Christmas a humbug? You can't mean that! I do! Merry Christmas! What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, what right have you to be dismal? You're rich enough. Bah, humbug. Don't be cross, uncle. What else can I be, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle! Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine. But you don't keep it. Let me keep it alone. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have no profit. Christmas among the rest. You said it, Fred! That's enough out of you, credit. Let me hear another sound from you and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. Don't be angry, Uncle. Die with us tomorrow. Bah, humbug. But why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. <laughs> Good afternoon. No, Uncle. But you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, but I have made a trail and homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last, 
So, a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word. He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. In letting Scrooge's nephew out, the clerk known to all as Bob Cratchit had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. Oh, well... At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. Are there no prisons? Well, there are plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses? They are still in operation? They are. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them. A few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned through the taxes I pay and those cost enough. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentlemen withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself, and in a more facetious temper than was usual with him. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge looked at his clerk. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. It's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of building up a yard. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Also, that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon. And then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That and its livid color made it horrible, but its horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than a part of its own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled would be untrue, 
but he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. After searching the rest of his house and finding nothing out of the ordinary, he made his way back to his own room. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Bah! Humbug. Scrooge did not know what this next sound was, and then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still. I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. I know him. Marley's ghost. The same face. The very same. And the ghost had a chain clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. Though he looked at the phantom through and through, and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of his death-cold eyes, and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? You're particular for a shade. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... can you sit down? I can. Do it then. You don't believe in me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality, beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. You see this toothpick? I do. Well, I have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you. Humbug! Much greater was Scrooge's horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy! Dreadful apparition! Why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do, I must! But why do spirits walk the earth? And why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow man and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world and witness what it cannot share, but must have shared on earth and turn to happiness. You are fetid. Tell me why. I wear the chains that I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and on my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? My chain is some sixty fathoms long. Yours was as full and as heavy as mine seven Christmas Eves ago, and you have labored on it since. Jacob, old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. 
I have none to give. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house, and weary journey lies before me. You must have been very slow about it, Jacob. Slow? Seven years dead, and traveling all the time. The whole time, no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast. On the wings of the wind. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolent were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. At this time of the rolling year I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of my fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them? Hear me, my time is almost gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me, Jacob. How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see? I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. That is no light part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of procuring Ebenezer. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance you mentioned, Jacob, and the hope? It is. I... I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up his hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped. Not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand, he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge, and floated out upon the bleak dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few were linked together, none were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost, in a white waistcoat, with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it sat below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was, clearly, that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into the mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. 
Without another thought, he ran to his bed and fell asleep on the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could barely see anything. And then he listened and heard the chimes of the clock and waited to learn the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve, then stopped. Twelve? It was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have got into the works. He touched the spring of its repeater to correct this most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat twelve and stopped. Why, it is impossible that I can have slept through a whole day and fallen into another night. It is impossible that anything has happened to the sun, and this is twelve at noon. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside. Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were, like those upper members, bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held the branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and, in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments a great extinguisher for a cap, which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality. For as its belt sparkled and glittered now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. What brought you here? Your welfare. Rise and walk with me. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window, clasped his robe in supplication. I am immortal and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there, and you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall, and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. Not a vestige of it could be seen. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Good heaven! I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, 
each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. You recollect the way? Remember it? I could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. Let us go on. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance, with its bridge, its church, and winding river. These are but shadows of the things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. And the school you called home is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. The ghost and Scrooge went on until they came upon a house Scrooge knew well. The door to the house opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made bare still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form. Not a latent echo in the house, not a squeak and scuffle from the mice behind the paneling, not a drip from the half-thawed water spout in the dull yard beyond, not a sigh among the leafless boughs of one despondent poplar, not the idle swinging of an empty storehouse door, no, not a clicking in the fire, but fell upon the heart of Scrooge with a softening influence, and gave a freer passage to his tears. I wish, but it's too late now. What is the matter? Nothing, nothing. There are just some people I would like to speak with. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker and more dirty. The panel shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling, and the naked laths were shown instead. But how all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so, that there he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in, and putting her arms around his neck, and often kissing him, addressed him as her dear, dear brother. I have come to bring you home, dear brother. Home, little fan. Yes, home, for good and all. Home, forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be, that home's like heaven. He speaks so gently to me. Yes, home for good and all. Home forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be. That home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said, yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you, and you are never to come back here. Always a delicate creature whom a breath might have withered but she had a large heart. So she had. She died a woman and had, as I think, children. One child. Your nephew. Yes. Although they had but that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city, where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too it was Christmas time again, but it was evening, and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door, and asked Scrooge if he knew it. Know it? I was apprenticed here. And why, that's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer! Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in. Yo-ho, my boy! No more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Ebenezer! Hilly-ho! Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hilly-ho, shut up, Ezraniza! Yo-ho, my boy, no more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Ebenezer! 
Hello! Crawl away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here! Hello! Cheer up, Ebenezer! Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away, or couldn't have cleared away, with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. And in came a fiddler with a music book, and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it, and tuned like fifty stomach aches. In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way, who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master, trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door but one, who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling, in they all came, anyhow and everyhow. Old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple, too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pairs of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance, and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, ah, four times, old Fezziwig would have been a match for them, and so would Mrs. Fezziwig. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two prentices, they did the same to them, and thus the cheerful voices died away, and the lads were left to their beds, which were under a counter in the back shop. During the whole of this time, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene, and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now, when the bright face of his former self was turned from them, that he remembered the ghost, and became conscious that it was looking full upon him, while the light upon its head burnt very clear. A small matter, to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? Why, is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four perhaps, is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that. It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What is the matter? Nothing particular. Something, I think. No, no. I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all. My time grows short. This was not addressed to Scrooge, or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect. For again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of his life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion that had taken root, and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a mourning dress, in whose eyes there were tears, which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, to you very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? A golden one.
This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, have I not? What then? Even I have grown so much wiser. What then? I am not changed towards you. Am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until, in good season, we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. Your own feelings tells you that you were not what you are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no, never. In what, then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope at its, as its great end, and everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? Ah, no. I would gladly think otherwise if I could. I release you, with a full heart for the love of him you once were. May you be happy in life you have chosen. Spirit, conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? One shadow more. No more. No more. I don't wish to see it. Show me no more. But the relentless ghost pinioned him in both his arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place, a room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside, and when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father, and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. Bell, I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. How can I? Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window, and as it was not shut up and he had a candle inside, I could scarcely help seeing him. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear, and there he sat alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit! I told you, these were shadows of things that have been. They are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me! I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face, in which, in some strange way, there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him, wrestled with it. Leave me! Take me back! Haunt me no longer! In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle, in which the ghost with no visible resistance on its own part was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright, and so he seized the extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form, but though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light, which streamed out from under it in an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness and, further, of being in his own bedroom. 
He gave the cap a parting squeeze, in which his hand relaxed, and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Having fallen back asleep, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time, for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new spectre would draw back, he put them every one aside with his own hands. For he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance, and he did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and, consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being the only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant, or would be at and was sometimes apprehensive that he might be at that very moment an interesting case of spontaneous combustion, without having the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he began to think the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter he obeyed. It was his own room, there was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney, as that dull petrification of a hearth had never been known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. And in the room sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have you never walked forth with the younger members of my family? Meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years. I don't think I have. Have you had many brothers, Spirit? More than 1,800. <laughs> A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. 
Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast, and found himself standing in the city streets. While the world around them was gloomy, the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball. The poulterers' shops were still half open, and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great, round, pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors, and tumbling out into the street in their apoplectic opulence. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings innumerable people, carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? To any kindly given. To a poor one, most. Why to a poor one, most? because it needs it most. Spirit, I wonder you, of all the beings in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I? You would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, wouldn't you? I. You seek to close these places on the seventh day, and it comes to the same thing. I seek. Forgive me if I am wrong has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family. There are some upon this earth of yours who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill-will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks, for there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence and she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Pete Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose, and known it for their own. What has ever got your precious father then, and your brother Tiny Tim? And Martha won't as late last Christmas by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are. We had a deal of work to finish up last night and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind so long as you are come. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless ye. Look, father's here. 
Hello, my family! And how did little Tim behave? As good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he could barely walk and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth it was something very like it in that house. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, and Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it in the breast, but when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife. There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness, were the themes of universal admiration. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears! God bless us! God bless us, everyone! He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his own. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No! No! Oh no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my family will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Do not use my own words. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Mr. Scrooge, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks to health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know who he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake and the days, not for his. Long life to him, and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for full five minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. They were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time, and when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, 
Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time it was getting dark, and snowing pretty heavily, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and coarse rank grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. See! A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled around a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices, the old man got quite blithe and loud, and so surely as they stopped, his vigor sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on to sea. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some league or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse. Great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm birds, born of the wind one might suppose, as seaweed of the water, rose and fell about it like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire that through the loophole in the thick stone wall shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Again the ghost sped on until, being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout at the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. Just a few more stops. My time is short. Let us go to a place you should know well. Ha ha! He said that Christmas was a humbug as I live. He believed it too. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carried their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. That is my own nephew, Fred. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill wills? Himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rat at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. 
if you finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying uncle scrooge how are you for it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds that's something and i think i shook him yesterday it was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking scrooge but being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring what they laughed at so that they laughed at any rate he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously after a while, the party played at forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas. Scrooge looked upon the party with delight, and the ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favor that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guests departed. But this, the spirit said, could not be done. Here is a new game. One half-hour spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what he only answering to their questions yes or no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, rather a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes, and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and was never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass, or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cat, or a bear. At every fresh question that was put to him, this nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter, and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. At the last plump sister, falling into a similar state, cried out, I have found it out! I know what it is, Fred! I know what it is! What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge! And before another world was spoken, Scrooge and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it, until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was grey. Our spirit's lives so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight, at midnight. Hark! The time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask. But I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. They were a boy and girl, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. Scrooge started back, appalled. From the foldings of its robe it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here. Look, look, down here. Spirit, are they yours? They are man's, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both, and all of their degree. But most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. 
deny it. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your own facetious purposes and make it worse, and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Scrooge looked down when he heard the spirit speak his own words to him once again. But at the sound of the clock up, Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming, like a mist along the ground, towards him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghosts of Christmas yet to come. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? Ghost of the future! I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear your company and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. Its hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on! Lead on! The night is waning fast and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit! The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, on change, amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets, and conversed in groups, and looked at their watches, and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals, and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Observing that the hand was pointed to them, Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Why? What was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. What has he done with his money? I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me. That's all I know. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral, for upon my life, I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer? I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed if I make one. Well, I'm not interested. I never wear black gloves and I never eat lunch, but I'll offer to go if anybody else will. When I come to think of it, 
I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend, for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided on into a street. Its finger pointed to two persons meeting. Scrooge listened again, thinking that the explanation might lie there. He knew these men, also, perfectly. They were men of business, very wealthy and of great importance. He had made a point of always standing well in their esteem, in a business point of view, that is, strictly in a business point of view. How are you? How are you? Well, old scratch has got his own at last, eh? So I'm told. Cold, isn't it? Seasonable for Christmas time. Not another word. That was their meeting, their conversation, and their parting. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversations apparently so trivial, but feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, for that was past, and this ghost province was the future. Nor could he think of anyone immediately connected with himself to whom he could apply them. But nothing doubting that to whomsoever they applied, they had some latent moral for his own improvement. He resolved to treasure up every word he heard and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared. He looked about in that very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. It gave him little surprise, however, for he had been resolving in his mind a change of life, and thought and hoped he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark, beside him stood the phantom, with its outstretched hand. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town, where Scrooge had never penetrated before, although he recognized its situation and its bad repute. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed, beetling shop below a penthouse roof, where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were brought. Upon the floor within were piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales, weights, and refuse iron of all kinds. Secrets that few would like to scrutinize were bred and hidden in mountains of unseemly rags, masses of corrupted fat, and sepulchres of bones. Scrooge and the Phantom came up into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black, who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. Let the chair alone, let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance, if we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place. Come into the parlor. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and the other two aren't strangers. We're all suitable to our calling, well matched. Come into the parlor, come into the parlor. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. No man more so. Why, then, don't stand staring as if you are afraid, woman? Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed. We should hope not. Very well, then. That's enough. Who's the worse for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed. 
If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? It's the truest word that ever was spoke. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment, and it should have been. You may depend upon it, if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Well, there's barely anything in this bundle. Here is your account, and I wouldn't give another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? I am. Not much here, either. And now undo my bundle, Joe. What do you call this? Bed curtains? Ah, bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took them down rings and all with him lying there? Yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching in out. For the sake of a man as he was, I promise you, Joe, don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Whose else's do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh? Don't you be afraid of that. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Ah, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. Why do you call wasting of it? Putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. This is the end of it, you see. He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to profit us when he was dead. Spirit! I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy though Scrooge glanced round it in an obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light, rising in the outer air, fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. He lay in the dark, empty house, with not a man, a woman, or a child, to say that he was kind to me in this or that, and for the memory of one kind word I will be kind to him. A cat was tearing at the door, and there was a sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone. What they wanted in the room of death, and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit! This is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson, trust me. Let us go! Still the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, and I would do it if I could. But I have not the power, spirit, I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. If there is any person in this town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, show that person to me, spirit, I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it revealed a room by daylight where a mother and her child were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room, started at every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock, tried, but in vain, to work with her needle, and could hardly bear the voices of the children in their play. At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed, 
and which he struggled to repress. Is it good or bad? Bad. We are quite ruined. No, there is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, amazed there is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. He is past relenting. He is dead. What the half-drunken woman whom I told you of last night said to me when I tried to see him and obtain a week's delay and what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me turned out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our dead be transferred? I don't know. But before that time, we shall be ready with the money. And even though we were not, it would be a bad fortune indeed to find so merciless a creditor in his successor. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death. Or that dark chamber spirit, which we left just now, will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and the children seated round the fire. Quiet, very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner, and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. Where had Scrooge heard those words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out as he and the spirit crossed the threshold. Why did he not go on? The mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. The color hurts my eyes. The color? Ah, oh, poor Tony Tim. They're better now again. It makes them weep like candlelight. And I wouldn't share weak eyes to your father when he comes home for the world and wash me near his time. I have known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. But he was very light to carry and his father loved him so that it was no trouble, no trouble. And there was your father at the door. She hurried out to meet him and little Bob and his comforter, he had need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to it most. Then the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid, each child a little cheek against his face, as if they said, Don't mind it, father. Don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. They would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? You went today, then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how great a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, he and his child would have been farther apart perhaps than they were. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. There was a chair set close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down in it, and when he had thought a little and composed himself, he kissed the little face. He was reconciled to what had happened, and went down again quite happy. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me, what man that was? Whom we saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before, though at a different time, he thought. Indeed, there seemed no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future. 
into the resorts of businessmen, but showed him not himself. Indeed, the spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on, as to the end just now desired, until besought by Scrooge to tarry for a moment. This court through which we hurry now is where my place of occupation is, and has been for a length of time. I see the house. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The spirit stopped. The hand was pointed elsewhere. The house is yonder. Why do you point away? The inexorable finger underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again, and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look round before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying, fat with repleted appetite, a worthy place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced toward it, trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be? Or are they shadows of things that may be, only? Still, the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. I, that man who lay upon the bed? The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit. Oh, no, no. The finger still was there. Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit. Your nature intercedes for me, and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh. Tell me, I may sponge away the writing on this stone. This is my home. Oh, I am home. Oh, thank heavens, I am home. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven in the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. I don't know what to do. 
I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to all the world. Hello there. Hello. I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know. Scrooge ran to the window and saw a boy on the street below dressed in his Sunday clothes. What's today? Eh? What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why, Christmas Day! It's Christmas Day! I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow! Hello! Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey, the big one. What? The one as big as me? What a delightful boy. It is a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now. Is it? Go and buy it. Walker? No, no, I am in earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. I'll send it to Bob Cratchits. He shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did, somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. As he stood there, waiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it as long as I live. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has on its face. It is a wonderful knocker. Here's the turkey. Hello! Whoop! How are you? Merry Christmas! Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy, were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again, and chuckled till he cried. He dressed himself in all his best, and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded every one with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant, in a word, that three or four good-humored fellows said, Good morning, sir, a Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said often afterwards that all of the blithe sounds he had ever heard, those were the blithest in his ears. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up into the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything, could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps toward his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. He entered the home and found his nephew and niece sitting round the table. They were looking at the table, which was spread out in great array, for these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points and like to see that everything is right. Fred. Why, bless my show! Who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I have come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? And his nephew did, and for the first time in a long time, he spent a night happily with his family. The next morning he was early at the office. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it, yes he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was full eighteen minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. 
His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen, as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I am very sure, sir. I am behind my time. You are? Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend. I am not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, and therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. A Merry Christmas, Bob. A Merry Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, that I've given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family. We will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop, Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old town, city, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe, for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May it be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us all, every one.